Hello, and welcome to the story of Rhode Island, the podcast that tells you the story of Rhode Island's fascinating history. In last week's episode, we saw Governor Samuel Cranston help Rhode Island overcome a series of challenges that have plagued their colony since its founding, enabling it to create a thriving economy. However, as we jump into episode three, we are about to be introduced to an entirely new set of problems that the Rhode Island colony will have to deal with now that the British Empire is attempting to reassert their control over the American colonies. We learn about these problems while revisiting the Green family in Potawatomi on a spring day in 1764. Sitting alongside the family's forge on the Potawatomi River is a man in his early 20s named Nathaniel Green Jr. Nathaniel is the great-grandson of James Green, the man from episode one who taught his son, Jabez, why the people of Rhode Island were so upset about the dominion of New England. As Nathaniel sits at the forge his great-grandfather built a little less than a century earlier, we see his face buried in a book. Along with being highly ambitious, Green is an avid reader, a trait that often puts him at odds with his father, Nathaniel Sr., a devout Quaker who sees book learning as a worldly luxury that inevitably leads one to sin. But Green has never allowed this to stop him, and he will spend the rest of his life educating himself on numerous topics like etiquette, business, and eventually, the art of war. While in the middle of his reading, the studious young man hears his father shout out to him, Nathaniel, come up here. I have something important to tell you. After taking a few more seconds to finish reading the page he's on, Green reluctantly closes the book and begins making his way to the family's house. As he does, a prominent limp can be seen creating an awkward step in his stride, an abnormality that he acquired as a child after a minor accident. However, even at the age of 21, he's still self-conscious about the unwanted attention that the limp brings him. When he makes it to the family's house, his father tells him that Parliament has decided to renew the Sugar Act. Not really understanding what the big deal is, Green sort of just shrugs his shoulders. The Sugar Act, and the tax it imposes on sugar and molasses imported from the West Indies, has been around for decades now, but is largely ignored. To most of the colonists, it's basically irrelevant. However, his father explains to him how it doesn't seem like that will be the case for long. He's been hearing rumors that the British government is actually going to begin enforcing the tax, meaning that it will eventually end up eating into the Rhode Islanders' profits. This catches Green off guard a bit, as he knows just how intertwined their economy is with sugar and molasses. But still, he wonders to himself, how much trouble could this actually cause? The answer to that question is more than he, or the British government, could have ever imagined. When the British government begins to actually enforce the Sugar Act, Rhode Islanders will respond with a series of violent protests that spark a power struggle between the two groups. Over time, the Americans will begin to see the British Empire as a tyrannical government that's attempting to destroy their inalienable rights as Englishmen, forcing the Rhode Islanders to take their protests up a notch. British patrol ships will burn in Narragansett Bay, rioters in Newport will hang tax collectors in effigy, and their colony will find themselves at the forefront of a revolution that's just beginning to unfold. The story of how Rhode Island helps to ignite the American Revolution is what we'll cover in this week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. At first, the British government's decision to begin enforcing the Sugar Act seems like nothing more than a completely reasonable financial decision. 
After the French and Indian War, the British government now finds itself deeply in debt and is claiming that they simply want to use the revenue generated by the Sugar Act to help pay off debt. And while on the surface, such a justification seems completely logical, in reality, there's something else going on here. Something to do with power. Since the collapse of the Dominion of New England in the late 17th century, the British government has pretty much allowed the colonists to do their own thing. But that mindset has changed. Parliament has decided that it's time to rein the colonists back in and remind them that at the end of the day, Parliament has the authority to enact whatever taxes and laws on the American colonies that they see fit. And to prove their point, the British government will now force the colonists to actually pay the tax imposed on them via the Sugar Act, whether they like it or not. The British government has no concerns about taking such an action, as they assume the American colonists will simply do as they're told. However, as they're about to find out, that assumption is wildly inaccurate. Over the past several decades, the strength and size of the colonies has grown immensely, and with this new power has come a strong sense of bravado. And Rhode Island is no exception to this change. Their colony has gone from being a gaggle of a few thousand religious outcasts to a formidable force of over 50,000 industrious individuals who have built a thriving economy, and one that is heavily intertwined with molasses imported from the West Indies. In fact, over 80% of all the molasses they import has been smuggled in illegally. There's no way they're about to just lie down and watch their profits come under attack without putting up a fight. And so, within just months of the Sugar Act being reinstated, the Rhode Island colonists decide to direct their outrage towards the royal ships patrolling Narragansett Bay, the HMS Squirrel, and the St. John. The protests begin in July of 1764, when the St. John confiscates a local vessel smuggling in molasses on the eastern shores of Aquidneck Island. This alone is enough to stir up trouble, but things only get worse when the people of Newport accuse some of the St. John's crew members of stealing from local citizens. And now, with the St. John scene making its way out of Narragansett Bay, it looks as though the crew will escape without being tried for their crime. Almost immediately, men and women begin running towards their local officials, exclaiming how men on that ship have robbed local citizens. As the news passes from official to official, it eventually makes its way to the Council of Rhode Island's governor, Stephen Hopkins, and a decision is hastily made to have the colony's gunners fire at the royal vessel. Within minutes, a loud boom can be heard echoing throughout Newport Harbor as a cannonball flies towards the St. John. As a small cloud of smoke emerges in the sky, the Rhode Islanders stand there in astonishment as they take a minute to process the fact that they have just fired at a royal vessel. But then, just moments later, another shot is fired. And then another, and another. Finally, one of the cannonballs actually hits the St. John's Maysail, and people throughout Newport begin to cheer. Knowing that it needs to find protection, the St. John hides behind the other patrol ship in the bay, the Squirrel, and its 22 guns. The captain of the Squirrel redirects its cannons aimed towards the Rhode Island gunners, letting them know the consequences they face if they dare to fire off another shot. The gunners wisely decide to cease fire, and the calamity finally comes to an end. The Rhode Island colonists don't know it, but they have just fired what some historians consider to be the first shots of the American Revolution. It not only foreshadows far more violent events that are bound to arise, but also illustrates how the people of Narragansett Bay have no plans of allowing an outside power to limit their vast profits. But shortly after the St. John incident, something even more monumental happens, something that redefines what the Americans are fighting for. Rhode Island's own governor, 
Stephen Hopkins, becomes one of the first Americans to explain why their protests are more than just a mere attempt to protect their pocketbooks. He does so by publishing a pamphlet in December of 1764 entitled The Rights of Colonies Examined. In the pamphlet, Hopkins states that, quote, all laws and all taxations which bind the whole must be made by the whole, unquote. Or, to sum it up in a phrase we've become more familiar with, no taxation without representation. Parliament might think that they have the right to enact laws and taxes on the American colonies without their consent, but that's not true. As Englishmen, the colonists are guaranteed the right of political representation, as it was promised to them in the Bill of Rights that emerged from the Glorious Revolution in 1689. Since the colonists are not represented in Parliament, these taxes are a direct violation of their rights as Englishmen. The constitutional right of representation shared by Hopkins, and then others shortly after, will eventually become the rallying cry that the Americans unite around during these early years of the Revolution. Therefore, by Newporters being one of the first, if not the first group of colonists to take up arms against the British, and with their governor being one of the first Americans to define what the colonists are fighting for, it puts Rhode Island at the forefront of the revolution that's beginning to unfold. And it's a revolution that isn't slowing down anytime soon. As far as anyone can tell, the summer of 1765 is shaping up to be even more tumultuous than the last. Just a few months earlier, Parliament imposed yet another tax on the colonists by passing the Stamp Act, which requires them to put a stamp on items like playing cards, legal documents, and newspapers. When news of the tax first made it to the shores of Narragansett Bay, the people of Rhode Island responded with their expected cries of outrage. But they quickly decided that they haven't made their point clear enough, so the Rhode Islanders have thought it prudent to ignite a new series of protests as well. It's an August afternoon in 1765, and hanging in front of the Newport Colony House is an effigy to the colony stamp officer, Augustus Johnson. And to ensure everyone is well aware of who the dummy is meant to symbolize, they've inscribed the words, THE STAMP MAN, across his chest in all capital letters. Making sure they haven't left anyone out, the people of Newport have also hung effigies of two of the town's known loyalists, Martin Howard and Dr. Thomas Moffat. As the bodies hang from the gallows in Newport, a strong summer wind causes the dummies to sway ever so slightly, while a group of storm clouds make their way over the colony house. Guarding the effigies are local merchants Samuel Vernon and William Ellery, the latter of the two being one of the colonists who will eventually sign one of our nation's most important documents in July of 1776. In front of the men is a crowd of local citizens looking up towards the gallows. While they wait for the ceremony to begin, a bottle of rum made from illegally imported molasses is passed around the crowd. Then, with the sun having disappeared behind the horizon, a man walks up to the gallows and lights the effigies on fire. With the bodies now fully engulfed in flames, the people in the crowd cheer loudly while shouts of huzzah come from the local tavern. Shortly after the event, Augustus Johnson, deciding it's probably not a good idea to try to collect taxes from these individuals, wisely decides to resign as the colony's stamp officer. For the next couple of days, the people of Newport continue to riot, and they will end up destroying the houses of the two loyalists who were also hung in effigy. Even Rhode Island's government joins in on the protests by telling their citizens that they are not expected to adhere to the Stamp Act as it was not created by their own institutions. By the time the Stamp Act riots come to an end in Newport, an even more radical sentiment has begun to emerge throughout the colonies as well. Many agree that along with fighting to protect their right of political representation, 
that they are also defending themselves from a tyrannical parliament that wants to have complete control of their lives. Just as the Commonwealth men had promised in Cato's letters, those in power are now attempting to destroy their liberties. Then, in 1766, the colonist fears are confirmed. When Parliament passes the Declaratory Act, which states that Parliament has the right to enact laws binding the American colonies in, quote, all cases whatsoever, unquote. To illustrate that they have this power, Parliament imposes yet another set of taxes on the colonists via the 1767 Townshed Act. Shortly after the act is passed, the Rhode Islanders not only respond by burning a royal vessel, known as the Liberty, but by publicly stating the evil that they are fighting against. The Rhode Island pamphleteer, Silas Downer, preaches on the streets of Providence about the tyrannical government they are fighting abroad. Meanwhile, Newport's newspaper, The Mercury, changes their slogan to, quote, Undaunted by tyrants, will die or be free, unquote. Then, the people of Rhode Island become even more enraged in March of 1770, when they find out that a group of British soldiers have killed five men in Boston, an event known today as the Boston Massacre. Not too long after the incident in Boston, an event takes place in Narragansett Bay that, while seeming somewhat insignificant at first, will end up having a major effect on the war that eventually unfolds. It will be the catalyst that turns a seemingly harmless Rhode Island businessman into an ardent opponent of the evil British Empire. This Quaker from Potawatomi will not only end up making it his life's mission to ensure the Patriots win this rebellion, but when war inevitably breaks out, he will become one of the most skilled generals that the British military faces during the entire Revolutionary War. It's the winter of 1772, and the highly ambitious Nathaniel Green is once again hard at work. While most of the people Green knows have become wrapped up in the Patriots' fight to protect their liberties, he has primarily remained focused on his business endeavors. He left Potawatomi just a few years earlier following the death of his father, and he now lives at the home he built in Coventry. And to this day, that home still stands by the Patuxent River. While at his newly built home, he takes a short break from meticulously reviewing his account book and decides to write a letter to his friend, Samuel Ward Jr., son of the off-and-on-again Rhode Island governor, Samuel Ward. He catches Ward up on his recent business dealings while also demonstrating his interest in self-improvement by reminding his friend to always, quote, study to be wise and learn to be prudent, unquote. But Green's writing quickly comes to a halt when he hears a loud knocking at his door. After pushing out his chair, he begins to make his way to the front door while the limp he's had since he was a child slows him down. When the door is finally opened, one of Green's business partners enters the house. Realizing that the man is stressed, Green asks him what's wrong. The man explains how the family's merchant vessel, known as the Fortune, was just seized by royal authorities and its large quantities of rum, sugar, and Jamaican spirits are now on their way to Boston to determine whether or not the goods were imported illegally. Knowing that this will inevitably eat into his profits, Green becomes furious and begins shouting at the top of his lungs. But the man tells Green that there's more. Green's younger cousin, Rufus Green, was harassed during the seizing of the fortune and was threatened with further punishment if he failed to comply. With his heart pounding and his fists now clenched in anger, Green asks his friend, who did this? Lieutenant William Dunningston, of course, replies his friend. Green shakes his head, knowing that he should have guessed that. Lieutenant Dunningston and his royal schooner, the Gatsby, have been unfairly seizing ships in Narragansett Bay for the past few weeks and have come to represent everything the colonists are fighting against. Green, with his own family and wallet now feeling the weight of British oppression, 
finally finds himself understanding what his fellow colonists are fighting against. As the months pass, he'll become even more aware of the issues his fellow colonists are dealing with, and before long, it'll make him a devoted member of the Patriot Movement. But while we wait for that transition to take place, we'll visit a different group of Rhode Islanders who are already prepared to take up arms against the British. After learning about how the Gatsby, the ship that just seized Green's vessel, now finds itself in a tremendously vulnerable position, the men have decided that it's time to strike. Their daring attack will take place just off the shores of Warwick, and it will become known as Rhode Island's most memorable protests of the entire revolution. Sitting above Narragansett Bay is a moonless, pitch-black sky. With the rest of Rhode Island fast asleep on this summer night, a group of men in eight rowboats with muffled oars make their way south down the bay. Two of the Rhode Islanders leading this secret mission are Abraham Whipple, a former privateer in the French and Indian War, and John Brown, one of Providence's wealthiest merchants. In all, about 60 men have joined them on this mission, and to help ensure their identities remain hidden, many of them have disguised themselves with black-smeared faces and Native American headdresses. After departing from James Sabin's tavern in Providence earlier that night, they are now heading towards Warwick. It's been five months since Lieutenant Dunningston and the Gatsby illegally seized Nathaniel Green's ship, and Dunningston has only heightened his abusive ways. Not only has he been stopping anything that floats in Narragansett Bay, but his men have also resorted to stealing livestock from some of the coastal farms. However, this daring group of Rhode Islanders were recently just informed that the Gatsby was run aground while chasing a local sloop known as the Hannah, and now the vessel sits helplessly along the coast of Namquit Point in Warwick. At about 1 a.m. on June 10th of 1772, the raiding party arrives at their destination and begins to surround the Gatsby. They hear a sentinel on the ship shout out to them, and asks who's there, but instead of responding, the men continue inching their way closer to the vessel. Moments later, a concerned Lieutenant Dunningston makes his way to the front of the Gatsby and tells the men that if they dare try to make their way onto the ship, then he'll have them shot. Unfazed by the threat, John Brown responds by saying, quote, I am the sheriff of the county of Kent, goddamn you. I have a warrant to apprehend you, unquote. When Dunningston once again tells the men to stay off of the vessel, another one of the Rhode Islanders shouts, quote, Damn your blood! We have you now! Unquote. Moments later, the men in the rowboats begin making their way onto the deck, while Duddingston and his crew attempt to defend themselves. During the ensuing struggle, one of the Rhode Islanders fires a shot at Dunningston, and a bullet passes through the lieutenant's arm and into his groin. As he lays there screaming in agony, the raiding party manages to overpower the crew, and forces them to surrender. Abraham Whipple and John Brown, realizing that Duddingston may die if he's not tended to, instructs one of the men who happens to be a doctor to dress his wound. While the doctor gets to work, a plan is devised to have the British crew rowed to the shores of Patuxet Cove so that they can be dropped off before the Rhode Islanders set the Gatsby on fire. Over the next couple of hours, the plan is executed flawlessly, and the men are able to escape while Duddingston and his crew watch the flames from the Gatsby rise high above the Warwick shoreline. By the time morning arrives, news of the event has already begun making its way through Rhode Island's coastal towns, and locals celebrate the fact that the days of being harassed by the Gatsby are long gone. On the other hand, the British government is not so pleased. They spend the next several months attempting to catch the perpetrators of the crime, but are unable to convince the Rhode Islanders to turn their fellow colonists in. Even a 1,000-pound reward from their king, King George III, does nothing to sway the people of Narragansett Bay to give up any information, 
and the men go without ever being caught. However, the British government's aggressive attempts to catch these men does convince the colonists that they need to have a more effective means of communication as protests continue to occur. It's critical that they continue to have a united front while also being able to provide mutual assistance when other colonies come under attack. Therefore, in large part due to the events surrounding the Gatsby, the colonies agree to create the Committee of Correspondence. Following that monumental event, the revolution continues to pick up pace when a group of Boston patriots dumps over 92,000 pounds of tea in the Boston Harbor in response to the Tea Act. It's at this point when the British government decides that they've had enough of the colonists' protests and that they must be subdued. Their attempt comes in the form of a set of laws known as the Intolerable Acts of 1774, which has Boston Harbor shut down, troops sent into the city to restore order, and General Thomas Gage appointed governor of Massachusetts. Rhode Island responds immediately by not only sending food to the people of Boston, but by being the first colony to call for a Continental Congress. The other colonies follow suit, and from September to October of 1774, representatives from the 13 colonies meet in Philadelphia to determine how they should respond to the latest measures taken by the British government. As the year comes to an end, the line in the sand between the British Empire and the American colonies is deeper than ever, and what once started out as a series of protests is now looking like it might erupt into something far more violent. Everyone knows that even the tiniest spark could ignite a war. Sitting beside Nathaniel Green at his home in Coventry is his wife, Katie, a woman from Block Island that he married last July. As she runs her fingers through her brunette hair, she reads the book that's sitting on her lap. But as it grows later in the night, she finds herself becoming tired, so she decides to take a break from reading and see what her husband is up to. As usual, she finds Green hunched over his desk, feverishly writing a letter to his friend about the despised government abroad. He writes with a type of passion that one can only have when they truly believe in what they are saying. In his letter, Green tells his friend about how the British government is nothing but a bunch of tyrants who will probably drive their two societies to war. After writing about the events at hand for a few more minutes, he finishes his letter and dates it April 19, 1775. Over the past several months, Green's become so confident that war is bound to break out that along with devoting himself to learning about military science, he is now also a private in the Kentish Guards. As of last October, the Guards have officially been designated as the Militia for Kent County. Green hoped that his enthusiasm for the Patriots movement would get him elected as a company leader, but he was disappointed to find out that the men were so embarrassed by his limp that they were hesitant to even let him march with them, let alone be the leader of their company. The events haunted Green ever since, but he has refused to allow it to discourage him. In fact, it's only inspired him to work harder and ensure he's doing everything he can to prove why he should be trusted to lead these men into battle if the time for war were ever to come. Eventually, Katie puts her hand on her husband's back and lets him know that she's heading up for bed. But moments after kissing Green goodnight, a loud knocking is heard at their front door. Startled by the aggressive banging, she turns and looks at her husband, who quickly rises from his chair. But before he can even make his way to the door, he hears a man shouting outside, Mr. Green! Mr. Green! Regulars have attacked a militia unit in the towns of Lexington and Concord, and hundreds of men have been killed. Green and Katie turn and look at each other with a shocked look on their faces, as a spark that they've been waiting for has finally arrived. With blood having been shed on the battlefield, they know that the days for protests are over, and the time for war has officially begun. 
They're well aware that it'll only be a matter of time before Green will have to leave his life behind in Coventry and take up arms with his fellow Americans. Rhode Island, like the rest of the colonies, is now at war with the most powerful empire in the entire Western world. The people of Rhode Island will not only bravely choose to fight for the sacred liberties they believe in, but will also be one of the first to realize that any hope of reuniting with their mother country is a hopeless endeavor. With this in mind, they will try to convince their fellow Americans that it's time to bring the rebellion to its inevitable conclusion, independence. To make it abundantly clear to everyone that they can no longer stand to be loyal to such a tyrannical king, Rhode Island takes a daring step that once again puts them at the forefront of the revolution that's now become an all-out war. But that's a story for next time on next week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Thank you for listening to the Story of Rhode Island. If you are enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave a review and to follow the podcast as well. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode and others as well, you can visit storyofrhodeisland.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Story of Rhode Island or on Facebook at the Story of Rhode Island Podcast. Thank you again and see you next time.